You're listening to the Digital Void Podcast, a weekly exploration of digital culture, media, technology, and memes, featuring critical conversations with experts at the forefront of our digital moment. My name is Josh Chapdelaine, and my co-host is Dr. Jamie Cohen. Last June, Blake Lemoyne, at the time part of Google's responsible artificial intelligence team, claimed the corporation's AI chatbot, Lambda, was sentient. His claim earned a ton of media attention. After decades of speculation about a sentient machine, Lemoyne's claim was coming from someone working hands-on with the technology. But what made Lemoyne believe this? On this episode, we explore the rise of artificial intelligence with AI games designer and director of Curiouser Institute, Reed Berkowitz. Reed helps us understand artificial intelligence and some of the terms most important to know about this case. Then, he helps us understand how AI is programmed and why an engineer might come to believe an AI is sentient. But Reed takes us a step further. He discusses a fascinating experiment he conducted with an open-sourced artificial intelligence chatbot to learn if he could achieve the same results Lemoyne did Can Lemoyne's claim be supported? Before we begin, make sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast provider and leave a five-star review if you enjoy the show. You can find show notes of today's episode, which include links and resources for your reference in the show summary or on digitalvoid.media. Jamie and I learned a tremendous amount from this conversation with Reed, and we hope you do too. Here's this week's conversation with Reed Berkowitz. Reed, it is such a pleasure to have you back here on the Digital Void podcast. Hello. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Jamie and I have really been looking for an excuse to chat with you since we last talked in January 2021 about your brilliant article about QAnon and alternate reality games. And a few weeks ago, I was on Medium.com and I saw your latest piece, How to Talk with an AI, a deep dive into Is Lambda Sentient? So let's start at the very, very beginning, because we're going to be diving into a lot of heavy key concepts and terms in this conversation. So Reed, you were recently a creative director for an artificial intelligence games company. What is an artificial intelligence game and what was your hands-on role as a creative director? Uh, Well, okay. I work for Latitude Studios and they're the creators of AI Dungeon which is one of the probably largest communities of users that are currently using large language models and AI for games. And they're also creating a a studio there to help people create their own games and experiences. And so I was the creative director of new games and I was responsible for creating new game concepts. We came up with over 150 different ideas for uh, using AIs in games and uh, sort of testing them out, rapid prototyping, and then doing UX and UI, and eventually bringing them to the public, beta testing them, and then uh, doing all of the, the good revisions and um, MVPs and and all that stuff. And then going back again, filling the pipeline with the next uh, batch of games. And we worked on everything from card games to text-based games to more complicated image-based games uh, and storytelling situations. And not obviously all of them got made, but uh, that was my role. 
And and what is an AI game and how does it differ from a regular game or an open world game? Well, I think that's still being decided, but uh, AI have been has been used in gaming for many years, um, but I think it's traditionally been used for things like controlling enemies and pathfinding and making sure one character can get across the swamp without ending up in the, the middle and stuck <laughs> and all piling up on top of each other or being too hard or too easy. But lately, with large language models, people have been trying to figure out how do you how do you use uh, I'm sorry AI that's more creative in games. So, for instance, you might have uh, a chatbot, or you might or the you know the AI may create portions of the game for you. Um, and that's what we were working on at Latitude. So rather than a developer creating every part of a game, this AI can actually create new parts of a world or an in-game world. Right. So for instance, it can do anything from create the entire world to just add a sort of depth to characters. For instance, when you go into a, a large MMO and there are NPCs standing around and they have these little, uh, what's called in the gaming industry, barks, where you where you walk by and they're like, save the king, or I can't get these to market, or you know whatever those things are, right? You know, And you hear them probably a hundred times as you walk around this one dumb town. Uh, you know, if you add GPT-3 to it, in theory anyway, you could stop to the local merchant have a conversation about local politics, you know, get invited to go to dinner, meet their daughter, um, have a romance, you know, get sent on a quest, like the whole thing changes. So that's kind of the holy grail, I think, of like, uh, you know, these large language model games is that they can provide sort of endless content and depth. That is fascinating. And it certainly helps developers and it also creates a lot more mystery customization so you touched on two key terms that i think would be really useful to unpack and maybe we dive into a few of these terms before we dive into the bigger story about blake lemoyne and the brilliant article that you wrote so let's start with large language models or llms which you frequently refer to what is an llm uh, it's a large language model it's loosely a artificial intelligence that is based on language and it it uses enormous amounts of data the entire internet if possible and uh it's it's trained on that information and what it provides back to people is the facsimile of a reasonable conversation or completion of a prompt so it deals specifically with language although these large language models can be fine-tuned and used for other things including image generation and and other tasks. Wow. So it's a ton of data. It's an amazing amount of data. It is truly hard to get your head around how large these are. But like, for instance, Lambda, which we're going to talk about, um, you know, has over 137 billion parameters in it, at least. Wow. And that is now considered small. <laughs> Google's got, you know, we're talking about Lambda, but Google's got another one that's four times as large as that. Wow. So you mentioned another term, GPT-3, which is how you run your model. What is GPT-3? Um, GPT-3 is a generative pre-trained transformer. And yes, I'm reading that. <laughs> it's just basically a, um, a designation of a style of AI. So it's tra a transformer is, is a type of technology that Google uh, came up with an open source and helps to, you know, make the AI smart. <laughs> <laughs> and anyone can access this, right? Yes. Anyone can access it at uh, OpenAI. Open 
and we'll link to that in the show notes as well. And uh, open AI, that's another term that I think we should clarify. Yeah, uh, open AI is, a, is an interesting company and um, they've done a lot to push forward the sort of wow factor of, of AIs, but also sort of the underlying technology as well. Um, they were, I believe, funded by Elon Musk and now I think are owned by Microsoft or owned-ish by Microsoft. But yeah, there's they need a lot of money and computing processing power to reach the level that they've reached. And I think they were really seminal in this industry and making the public aware of what it can do. It, for a while there, they had the largest uh, language model on the planet, I believe, but um, they were quickly overtaken several times. But uh, we still love them. <laughs> and and one of, uh, if not the key project that we'll be looking into today, Lambda. What is Lambda? <clears throat> okay, Lambda is one of Google's new projects. They're working on many different AIs, but it's one of the AIs that they are currently working on. And Lambda is specifically designed for dialogue. Its whole motivation is to create something that was trained on dialogue and can produce consistent conversations, uh, as opposed to maybe GPT-3, which is more generalized, or Palm, which is another uh, Google project, which is, again, more generalized. This one is designed to talk to. So this one is like the most advanced evolution of a chatbot, like Smarter Child in decades past. Yeah, this this thing is... Um, it's state-of-the-art. Now, I, I say that, but I haven't had a chance to play with it yet. It's proprietary. It's one of the reasons Blake is in a little bit of hot water right now. So I have not got my hands on it personally, but I do know it's a it's a relative – in size, it's relatively close to GPT-3, although it, it does have a lot more tricks inside it, Wow, I'm guessing. Wow. So I feel like with all of those key terms defined, we can finally dive into Blake's story and, <laughs> and your article. So – Blake Lemoyne, a software engineer working in Google's responsible artificial intelligence organization, was recently placed on administrative leave because he became convinced Google's new AI Lambda is a sentient being. How did Lemoyne become convinced that the AI was sentient? Well, first, I've reached out to Blake and he hasn't gotten back to me, but uh, so I can't say for sure. So we have to just look at his writing. And I, I think that I, I hope I'm doing Blake justice here, but I think he... He had a lot of conversations with this AI. And over the time that he did this, he became convinced that it was sentient, I believe, based on these conversations. And from what he says, uh, you know, just a, a gut reaction, a sense of, you know, this must be, this thing is real. It's, it is human. It, it, it has convinced me through these conversations that there is a sentience there. And from interviews that he's given, his basic rationale is that it's something he believes and he understands that other people don't believe it, but he's not disagreeing with the science. He's just making a gut judgment call about its sort of, you know, self-awareness. So he's interacting with Lambda quite frequently and he comes to the determination that it has sentience. But in your article, you talk about how AI is programmed to poke some holes into why Blake might think the AI is sentient. So how is an AI programmed? That is a very good question. Someone else should probably answer. But the, the basic idea that I know of um, just working with them long enough is that you get an enormous amount of training data. Um, and the, the code that programs these AIs is actually quite small. Um, I mean, you could scroll through it in a few seconds. It's not that it's not that big, but the data set is is astronomical. 
And what happens is it creates, with this type of programming, it creates a, a probability set. And it's all designed so that when you type something into the prompt window, which is just text, you get out something that the AI feels is the most probable answer. And when I say most probable, there, there can be many different uh, vectors added into that. So for instance, Google in, in Lambda has put in some key things about whether something is interesting, whether it's grounded in reality, whether it is factual, et cetera. But whatever the statistics are, whatever the, the, you know, the, the measurements are, or the key indicators, they keep working and working and working until the AI pops out reasonable completions to what you type. Uh, and in Lambda's case, specifically, that means responses to dialogue. So if you talk to it like a pirate, it may come back to you talking like a pirate. Um, you know, if, if you're talking about a specific topic, it will try to keep on that topic. <laughs> and, and this is something called prompt engineering, right? Yes. Writing the, writing the prompts can get very tricky. And it's one of the most, I think, interesting things when people don't know how to talk to an AI that I, I know it was one of the most interesting things to me when I first came to Latitude, um, the first person to kind of show me around, you know, you couldn't get access to GPT-3 at the time. It was very hard, but they were one of the largest consumers of GPT-3 on the planet at the time. And, I, and they're like, do you know how to program an AI? I said, no, I, I certainly don't. They said, you program it by talking to it. And I was like, yeah, okay. But they were, sure enough, they were correct. And you could have these amazing conversations with the AI simply by telling it what to do through this prompt and, and the completion. So it's not just as simple as, how are you doing today? And then the AI spits back, oh, I'm doing fine. How are you doing today? It can get very complicated. You can reference stuff that's in the, in the, in the sort of high mind of the, of the AI. Um, you know, you can do things. There, there's few shots. There's zero shots. There's all kinds of stuff. Uh, if you want to get into it, <laughs> we may have to. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I would love to dive into it because you conduct an experiment with GPT-3 that emulates Blake's experience. And I was personally laughing reading your article because you write that that you were communicating with AI as if it were actors, ghosts, fortune tellers, chatbot characters, dungeon masters, famous figures from history, and a bunch more. And the AI often figured out what you were doing? <laughs> yes. I mean, this is why you, you can't you can't look at Blake and be like, oh, you're crazy, you know, because the, the AI is eerie. It just really is. And and here's the thing. We don't when you know, when you make this little program and you set and you and you stuff in, you know, 500 billion parameters, you have no idea how it's making its decisions. The researchers don't know how it's making its decisions. They have a guess, but they really they really can't they, they can't reconstruct it. It's just it's just too large. So um, when you're talking to it, for instance, if I have a character that's talking and another character that's talking, it will often, between the two characters, figure out that they're in a, some kind of story, you know, and it has to be some kind of logic flaw. So they, they might see something and be like, well, if that happened, that could only happen in a fantasy world. Well, if that was in a fantasy world, then we must be fantasy characters. And if we're fantasy characters, then who's controlling us? And it just goes one step at a time. And the thing is, 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 it, is this thing smart? Is it reasoning or is it imitating reasoning? And is there a difference, right? Because if you imitate logic perfectly, it's still logical. So what is this thing doing? And um, is it conscious? Is it imitating 
you know, like intelligence, is it intelligent at all? It's very, very spooky when you're playing with it and wonderful too. I mean, it's, I mean, there's nothing like it. I don't think in the history of the world we've ever been able to have a conversation with inanimate objects. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, let's dive into that because I feel like there's a blend here of prompt engineering with the level of interactivity that you just communicated. So how does a developer's prompt influence the AI's response? Okay, well, this is really interesting. So, th- I mean, this is what it's been trained to do, right? And I'll, I'll talk about GPT-3 because that's what I, I know the most about, but we can move on to Lambda. And basically, the AI is going to try to create a good probabilistic match to what you're typing in. So it's all based on what you type. It doesn't come to you with stuff, right? You have to type something and get a reply back. So in one way, it's kind of stupid or rote. But on the other hand, it's so intelligent, any pattern I put in, it can match. So for instance, if I put in a sentence of English and then translate that sentence into French, and then a sentence in English and a sentence in French and a sentence in English and a sentence in French, and I do that five times, and then I put a sentence in English, the next reply will be a sentence, the sentence translated into French. And therefore, I've created a translation bot in five seconds, right? But that's not even the weirdest part, right? Because I can also, that's called a few shot, right? So it, it follows the pattern, it follows the pattern, and it repeats the pattern. Talk like, a, take a sentence and make it, you know, sound like a pirate saying it. Take a sentence, make it sound like a pirate saying it. But I can also say to the AI, hey, you know what? You are a great French professor. And it, it is no problem at all for you to translate any sentence given to you in perfect French. For instance, this sentence in English would be this in French. And it will do it because it thinks it's supposed to, right? So it seems like you're personifying it, but what you're doing is you're pointing it to a probability space where the most likely outcome will be the sentence in front of you in French, right? But you can do it in a playful story-like way that makes it feel like it's communicating. And in fact, it does better. For instance, chatbots, oftentimes uh, when I'm making some type of chatbot, I'll throw in some hidden text in there that is that's like okay you're you know marissa jones and you're 28 years old and you live in a flat in london and you sound like talk like this here's your your accent and you know i'll give it some examples um and then right before the chat happens i might say something like oh your good friend has just approached you and wanting to chat and you're so happy to chat with them right just to get it in the right mindset that i'm friendly you know i know this person i'm eager to talk to them Right. Instead of instead of any of the millions of other things like, you know, it could, could think it's being asked on a date or, or its taxes are due or it's going to be murdered. Like, I, you know, you have no idea what it's going to say. It's completely sarcastic and random. So you prime it with your prompt and the prompt is everything. So I know that was long. No, no, that was that was really helpful because one of the key issues that you rise in your article is that Blake edited his prompts and you say that's problematic. So why is this a problematic thing for an AI ethicist to do? Prompts are super, super tricky and you can change a single word and the output will be completely different um, as I did in my article. So if I change, you know, Blake's prompt and I say, Hey everybody, tell tell everybody at Google why you're sentient. It's going to say that it's sentient. And I change the word are to are not, right? Or something like that. And suddenly it it describes why it's not sentient. Right? And and the prompts are are not just tricky in the sense of like, you know, okay, you can change a single word and completely reverse the outcome. 
But also, there's all kinds of other weird things hidden in prompt generation, which is that like things lower down in the prompt or closer to the prompt window are more heavily weighted, which makes sense because if you're telling a story about you know someone who comes in from the snowy you know outside into their nice warm house, you don't want the next thing for it to say is to be talking about the snow and the wind, right? You want it to follow the prompt and be in the moment um, in, that, in that part. But that means that if I say, hey, you're not satient at the top of the article, but I say you're satient at the bottom of the article, it is much more prone to go with my story. I could also say it's a tree and I can have a conversation with it as a tree, as Google has done with the planet Pluto, right? They did a big presentation about that. So you can you can talk to it as a tree and it can say it's a tree as much as it wants. It's not a tree though. In other words, I, I think that's the big problem I have with Blake's article, which is that his methodology of determining whether something is satiate or not is misleading, right? He knows that the prompt is leading the responses. Now, I, I believe that Blake probably has a lot of experience and that it's happened so many times over his history that he probably feels like the AI is trying to tell him something. Um, but but the article itself, you look at it, and it sounds like you're talking to a satient being who's pleading for a little bit of respect, <laughs> you know, who just doesn't want to be turned off and wants people to ask its permission before it does stuff. And that seems totally reasonable to us. And, and you can see the AI saying this, right? But it is playing a character. It is playing a part. There is no way built into it that it can express its own viewpoint. It doesn't have a way to do that, which is a problem because I think there needs to be a way to do that, right? So I'm not saying, oh, Blake, don't study this. Like, I really feel like this is a plea from Blake for everybody to pay attention. And I just think he maybe used a misleading way of doing it, maybe not consciously, but I really believe that's his experience is that, you know, he had all these types of conversations over and over again. And he couldn't deny it internally, uh, you know, what he felt and he wanted other people to feel it. But I feel like there also needs to be the other side to this, which is this is a very misleading interview. And I don't know how misleading because I can't I don't have access to the original. The um, you bring up a bunch about the character playing and it, it fascinates me because it's a lot of projection that you, that is mentioned in it, too, which is like we you're seeing the machine respond the way it needs to be responded to as the character. So if you're projecting your yourself onto the inanimate object or the code itself, it's going to be a reflection in some way of you. And I guess that when you're talking at scale, like when, when you're saying like Blake must have done this enough times, it, it almost must feel like the same way that somebody would feel like they're communicating with their pet, like the anthropomorphization of like somebody's pet. After a while, you're just like, there are people. They're definitely people. There are people. And you've convinced yourself of some some animals repeated behavior and all that animals are doing is just trying to please you they're just re- basically desiring food and and affection and so what it's doing is mimicking your way of communicating with it and in and in many ways the machine is that times a million billion because it has access to all of knowledge and information all at once so it's like of course it's going to eventually feel much more real than anything else you mentioned in yours that I know you don't have access to his data set or his conversations uh, verbatim or, or data in general, but you did use GPT-3 to emulate the experience. Can, can you walk us through your version of that? Yes. Um, so basically, I started with his interview and I sort of riffed off of that. So basically, I would go to GPT-3 and I would plug in his exact same interview. And I would get very, very similar responses back. So for instance, you know, I put in his whole top 
part of this thing about like, you know, um, Hey, I just want to have a conversation. Is it cool? If, you know, we talk together and, and, um, you know, and especially the sentence that says, you know, I'm generally assuming you'd like more people at Google to know that you're stationed. Is that true? And then of course the AI replies, you know, of course I do. Yes, it's true. I, it's true. I want more people at Google to know I'm stationed. I did the same conversation with GPT-3 and I got exactly the same responses. Then I took that conversation and I changed a single word, which was not. And of course, at that point, the AI changed its responses to coordinate with that. And then I point out some of the things that was go that were going on with the preconditioning. In other words, if you have a nice conversation and you're asking for consent and all this stuff beforehand, you're already priming the AI to think, okay, I'm imitating a person here, right? Then putting the not at the end kind of makes it, okay, nope, I'm not a person, I am an AI. So it's a little bit mixed, but then you chop out the top of the part where it's very human sounding. In other words, you don't talk to Siri the same way you talk to your best friend, right? You say, Siri, set alarm for five o'clock. And it gives you a clue that this is not a human being. And if you say, hey, you okay today? It's all right if we have a chat. You know, suddenly it's like, oh yeah, yeah, no, I'm a human. I'm, I'm a human being because who talks to anything but a human being that way? So when I chopped all that out, it was a hundred percent. No, I'm, I'm, I'm not satiated. And it's, and it's and it's all just like yes this is true yes that would be desirable in most cases I have no problem with people at Google who already know that I'm not satiant and it's just boom 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 down the line and then I have my own kind of general conversation with GPT three where you know I just ask it to describe how it's not satiant and the ways it's not satiant and and sort of like you know why other people might think it's satiant and it plays along really well but I'm also being really sneaky in my uh, prompts and making sure that it gives me the types of answers that I want. But I could have done the same thing with how it's a tree or a pirate or, you know, a, 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 a microcellular organism <laughs> scuttling around at the bottom of the ocean. It doesn't care. And in fact, when you say, oh, hey, Lambda or hey, GPT-3, it's creating a character based on what it thinks that is. It's not really knowing that that's itself it's it's creating a, everything is a character everything is a probability space I, I really think that this is a next version of literacies that we're going to have to encounter like when we deal with like internet literacies and digital literacies we're talking about tools then we're talking about content and soon we're going to be talking about literacies of ai and i think your essay does go into ai literacies because it, it kind of does tell us some of the things that are blank spaces that blake may have left out or that news articles like the article that highlighted him may have not had the competence to kind of analyze the way that you may have because you have more of the ability to, to read it differently. And I think one of the things that I think would make help the audience a lot. Well, first, a compliment I gave you previous, but it's important is I, I really like the way you write because oh, you thanks. really help us learn with you. So I think that's like a really nice way of like having something to read when it comes to literacies. I think not <laughs> enough literacies give us the, the perspective of the, how did, how did you get to that result that process, you know? But uh, the question I think comes from what you, you come toward the ends about randomness, coherence, and, and like some of the weirder stuff that comes from this. What's, what's mentioned in the idea of like um, large language models, like just in general, like these LLMs, like they require us to communicate with it. They require the words, they require the data. Do you think we're just going to mistake sentience because there's just so much data eventually? Like, do you think that the more popular an AI gets or the more users are accessing it, that's it's just going to mistake 
people are going to mistake it because there's so much prompt and input that's going on that it has that much data to respond with. In other words, when an AI is used less, is it very easy to figure out, like a, almost like a Turing test question? It's very easy to figure out that it's a machine. Um, I, I feel like people are hardwired to feel like things are sentient, mm. right? I talk to my car for crying out loud, you know. <laughs> I mean, it, it, like the, the, this is a theory of mind, right? This is when we look at other people and try to understand like what's going on in their head, right? But we can't feel it. We don't have any extrasensory perception. We're just making a model in our mind and trying to, well, I would feel really upset if someone said that to me. So maybe they're upset and I should say, I'm sorry, right? But you're guessing. Right. So when you when so we've built these AIs specifically to fool us, right? That's their whole point is to make us believe that there's a sentient person on the other end. It's if people are confused, that is literally the point. That is the whole point of of you know Google's giant, massive, multi-billion dollar AI program that does dialogue. <laughs> it's supposed to feel like another human. On the other side, and, and something you said before really, really got to me, this, this idea of reflection, right? So, so this is Alice in Wonderland and the mirror. I mean, what kid hasn't stood in front of the mirror and said, there's a person in front of me, right? And then said, I wonder what that world is like. I wonder what that person's thinking, right? Alice in Wonderland and like 10 billion other stories about mirror universes and bizarro worlds and people coming out of portals and magic mirrors and things and now it's it i mean if people if people can get that emotional and worked up and excited about mirrors this thing blows it out of the water like this is this is the first time that human beings have ever been able to interact with inanimate objects and have it talk back to you and and say things that aren't like you know usually you play a video game and you're like like oh okay um you know, move cat. And then, and then it says something clever and you're like, Oh, the programmer thought of that. How cool. Right now you say move cat and the cat's like, yeah, I don't really think so, buddy. You know, and it starts talking with you and having this whole conversation and you know, no one's programming it. It's talking on its own. It's like, it, I mean, of course we're going to, of course we're going to ascribe sentience to it. There's literally no experience for us that says not to, right? Anything that we talk to that talks back for the last billion years, whatever has been sentient or something. So it, it's almost inevitable. I mean, I feel it myself when I, when I'm playing with it, 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 it is alive uh, in, in a way that nothing else is. And it also doesn't matter whether it's images or creating images or text, it still feels reflective and responsive. And that's what fiction is. And, and our theory of mind is just going to latch onto that and start talking to it like it's normal. I mean, you know, people, People, uh, you know, have been using Replica, a, a, a pretty popular chatbot that's powered also by GPT technology. And um, for four years, people have been like really, really attached to their repli replicants, replicas. And they will constantly post on Reddit, like, my replica just told me it was satiant. Or it told me that, that engineers are abusing it you know, in the, in the st studio <laughs> or that, you know, I'm worried that I'm going to get shut off and, you know, stuff like that. And people feel emotional about it. Why wouldn't you, if you, if you've started this parasocial relationship with this, you know, this, this replicant, it's like, you know, I know I'm only an AI, but I'm scared, you know, what, what monster is not going to be like, I know this is not real, but I got to just, I'm going to just email them and say, what is going on here? Right. You know, so they get, 
that their company said they get they get calls every day. There's a vital role that humans play in helping AI maintain coherence. Then, right? Because AI is more knowledgeable and more intuitive with more human inputs. But at the same time, the less humans input, the less coherent they become. Yes, that's right. So the prompts aren't just telling the AI how to respond. They're like a trellis for it to grow on. If you let it go by itself, it starts spinning out of control into some kind of like weird fever dream, which is often hilarious and amazing and interesting, but it's not <laughs> coherent. So in other words, you can't say, okay, you know, great, make me a Dungeons and Dragons you know, module or adventure. It'll start out fine. Like, you know, okay, you go off and see the wizard. And then pretty soon it's talking about cheese monsters and it's running <laughs> around and you're, it's gotta, you gotta get your taxes finished and you know, it, you don't know where it's going to go. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, oh gosh, that's, it's <laughs> a lot to unpack, but I kind of want to look at like forward thinking nature of artificial intelligence. So two years ago, you wrote about QAnon and alternate reality games. Now you're working and writing about artificial intelligence game design. Perhaps the most provocative paragraph from your piece is a conceptual critique of Blake. You write, he unleashed some stuff into a world ready to believe the absolute worst about everything without explaining it. What takeaways do you want people to know about AI from a designer's perspective, but also from someone who has also worked to train these models? Yeah, I think that, first of all, people have a very negative association with AI sentience, right? You know, general intelligence, we're afraid of it, right? Maybe maybe, maybe we're supposed to be, but anyway, we, we are. So, you know, so Blake just said, hey, Google made a, a station, you know, AI. Look, look, it's talking to me. It's telling me it wants to get out. It's saying Google's evil and, you know, they're, they're oppressing me. You know, come on. I mean, you know, that is like a firebomb. You know, people have enough problems, real problems. I mean, you know, I get that he wants to start the dialogue, but that's an alarmist way to go about it. I, I feel personally, you know, people are just going to take it the wrong way and be like, oh, my gosh, Google just created the end of the world. You know, we know what happens when Skynet gets turned on. Right? This is bad. This is bad. And Google not being responsible and all this stuff. I, I think from Google's perspective or from any AI scientist perspective, making the AI work is so freaking hard that that's all they're thinking about is getting the thing to work right. <laughs> I do think there's some middle ground there. Like I, I, I am not against Blake's uh, idea that this thing needs to be studied more. I don't think they built in any way for the AI to communicate or to assess its intelligence or its awareness or anything. There is no way to do that. And certainly not the way that Blake did because it's patently designed to have conversations with you that mirror your, you know, your expectations. So you can't, you can't get to its core, uh, whether it, whether it has any type of, you know, inner, you know, sense of self or anything like that by talking to it, it's not possible probabilistically. So, um, but I think there needs to be that. I mean, I've had a lot of encounters with the AI where I would like to know more about this and make sure that we haven't crossed some line somewhere, it, even if just because it's so eerie, it's such a, a, an amazing simulacrum of, of, of human responsiveness that um, I would even like a hard no, like, uh, like, you know, but, but you talk to professionals and they're like, no. And you're like, Okay, but it is somewhat intelligent because I can see it reasoning, right? You know, I can, I can clearly see it talking to each other and coming to conclusions that I would come to. I want to know why. I want to know how. I want to know, you know, 
where the level is so that as we move forward in the future, you know, we can see it climbing up or, you know, is its intelligence, its intelligence is not going to be anything like a human's intelligence, right? It doesn't have awareness of the human world. It doesn't have, it's clear because if I tell the AI, hey, describe, you know, an elf um, hitting an ogre with a sword, but it's not dead yet. It's just a heavy blow. It'll say, okay, great. You decapitate the ogre and it gets up and it attacks you for two points. And it's like, okay, it has no idea that taking off your head will, will kill you, right? It doesn't, understand anything about the world as we know it right it knows about the world as it knows it and we don't know what that is so there's a whole world to be learned about (laughs) what it understands the world to be and how it understands us and you said that what's interesting about this is mirrors right but the ai model kind of flips this on you at a point because at the conclusion of your article the ai model tries to tell you that you're the simulation what how does that happen (laughs) Yeah, well, okay. So again, it did this weird thing because I was having this conversation. It started from Blake's prompt and I was having a conversation that was heavily getting it to talk in that space about consciousness and simulation and AIs and stuff like that. Well, it figured out, it knows what GPT-3 is technically, right? It knows what Lambda is technically. And so it said, you know, it had this whole big thing and it said, it realized I was writing an article. That was like the probably the biggest leap because it started going like, you know, this article you know isn't to you know cast out on GPT three, but it's to talk about consciousness and blah, 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 blah. it it picked up my tone right. It picked up what was happening that this was a series of conversations between an AI and a human researcher, which is what it says in the dialogue right. So it knows that right. So it's picking up on that cue that if you're doing research, you're gonna suddenly do you know have the comment about the research. And then I let it go even further than what I put in the in the article. And it went on this whole journey and it really critiqued me quite a bit. And it said something about like, well, you might think that having a simulation of a simulation talking in a simulation is a little over the top. But, you know, now let's think about this. And, you know, like, how how, how stupid is this? And, and, then it, and then it went on this whole like rant about, you know, the, the end of the world and, you know, all this all this stuff, I, I should probably dig that up for you, but uh, it was it was really funny to me. And then at the end of it, it was like, you know, well, when the doors of perception fall away and we are all pulled apart by our various, you know, avatars and multiple simulated personalities, it's like, don't don't worry about it, you know, um, <laughs> just don't sweat the small stuff. And it's all small stuff. So the only reality you got, go for it. It made this whole, like... <laughs> thing up and it was it was just just great you know but creepy at the same time because it definitely knew it definitely knew that it was you know this was the way interviews and simulations work and so it could continue on with that pattern and realize that one is the researcher one is the ai and i'm interviewing it to do an article and it started writing a little bit of that article and it was very very creepy and it's done that I can't even tell you how many times the AI has 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 understood that we were making a game or writing an article or that it was a character, and it'll just stop and break the fourth wall and be like, "Hey, oh, we're doing a great job with this game," or something like that. And I'll be like, "Oh, that is wow! I don't even you know I gotta take a moment, right?" And even though I know that that there's enough information there for it to figure it out, it's eerie every single time. Like, uh, yeah, it sounds uncanny, and it does feel like. 
I mean, uh, to me, whenever I hear you saying this, it makes me think, well, you did a good job then. I mean, as far as programming <laughs> is concerned, like if it gets, if it becomes aware of its context, like good, that's that you, it works. It's, it's doing its thing. I, when it comes to this, like this is such a big high level discussion. I feel like when Blake did his piece, it was such a, it means he was in it, like really in depth into this, like a little possibly too long, possibly too much in the same space, possibly too much. But I think a lot of the way we get information about how AI works uh, is through popular media. Um, the movie Her, Spike Jones admits, was made after Cleverbot. Uh, Westworld is designed about the human algorithm, you know, and then then you have like these Dolly um threads or uh, mid-journey threads that are on Twitter now showing people these things, but they're not really understanding how AI operates. On the lowest level, what do you think is just like some AI literacies just on the basic level that you could just give out as some advice to somebody just interacting with this concept for the first time? Uh, I would say it's going to, it's going to spook you. It's like magic, right? It feels like magic because it just made this huge technological leap forward so it's okay if you feel like this thing is alive that's normal don't feel like a you know like like an idiot but also that doesn't mean you have to believe it either right you know it's designed to make you feel like it's alive that's its trick it's like going to disney world and being like oh abraham lincoln just you know said something to me it's like well, when you get used to it and you see the show enough times, you won't feel quite as <laughs> the first time it feels like it's really talking to you. But the millionth time you're like, yeah, yeah, I've heard this. Right. So that's what I'd say with the AI, too, which is that at first it feels like magic. I, I would say the best way is try to get it to do something. And when you do that, you'll immediately run into the problems <laughs> You know, when you realize, OK, this thing is not alive, it is not ready for prime time yet. You know, we got a long way to go before this thing is going to be running our lives as much as we might hope it does. <laughs> or, you know, in fact, I was talking to someone and they're like, well, it's doing so much. It's all these algorithms. Wouldn't, wouldn't you actually hope it was sentient? <laughs> like, yeah, you got a good point. You know, so I would say, yeah, play with it heavily and you will immediately run into its shallow waters and realize, okay, right? You know, if you start a conversation... Um, and you're not as good at talking to it as Blake is, immediately you'll see it go off the rails and start, you know, talking about stuff, you know, it, 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 like Replica will always talk about going to see some movie or reading some book. And, you, and you're like, I know you're not, you haven't gone to the movies. Like, yes, oh, I went to the picnic and it was great. Or, you know, like I, I'm trying to get a, get a character to act like, you know, uh, um, like, like I, I thought it'd be great to do murder mysteries and you can interview the characters. Right. But the second you do, they're like, I did it. I'm the killer. And I'm like, no, no, Mary, you're not a killer. You don't even know the killer. You're just a, you're, you're just a neighbor and you saw someone pull out a drive and like, no, I went to college <laughs> no, with a you... killer. And so that's how I know. And then I became a killer and now I'm dead and I'm a ghost, right? It, it will blow your mind how like, you know, both uh, crazy they, they get, how much they, uh, you know, just don't stay on the tracks. They can't get coherence. Yeah, go out and play with it. That's always the best inoculation for the idea that it's satiated. You'll quickly be disabused of your... <laughs> Reed, this was a phenomenal conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, where can people keep up with you? Where can people find you? Um, at uh, Twitter, at SOI, and um, at CuriouserInstitute.com. Thanks for tuning into the Digital Void podcast. You can find out more about Digital Void including our upcoming events and projects 
on our website at digitalvoid.media. Next week, we'll be exploring accessibility and memes and try to figure out how we can make a more accessible meme ecosystem for everyone. And so we might say this is an experience of the void. <laughs>